You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, Free City. My name is Kevin Gray. I've been a part of Free City for almost two years now. Uh, I'm a member of the Stuart Weiniger City Group. I serve on, uh, I play drums with the worship team, I help out with kids, I'm on the prayer team, and I'm on greeting team as well. Uh, This morning, we are reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, in these uh, black Bibles that you have at your feet throughout the, the seats. You can find that on page 913, so I'll give you a second to turn there. Before we do that, I am going to pray over Casey's sermon, and I will pray for this school as well. So please pray with me. Father, you are worthy, uh, and you are holy, and we come before you this morning um, declaring these truths, waiting for the blessed hope of redemption found in Jesus. Um, We thank you so much for your goodness toward us and your love that never fails and never ends. Father, we are grateful that we can gather this morning. Uh, It is a gift that uh, we don't overlook anymore um, to gather with the body and sing these praises. Um, Father, as we do that and we come under the words that you have spoken to us through the prophets by your spirit, um, we ask for your blessing and your help that you would speak rightly and truthfully through Casey, uh, and prepare our hearts to receive these message, this message and these words to transform us into the people you have in mind, uh, image bearers conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we, we lift up this, this school and the people here. God, there is, there is a lot of darkness uh, in, in school and in uh, the lives of children, Uh, in this country right now. And so we just plead with you for mercy uh, and help. Pray for uh, the staff and the faculty uh, to love kids well and to demonstrate hope. And that even as we worship here this morning, uh, that there would be uh, something very clear that your spirit is here and that uh, your people are here. So, Father, we pray for your love to radiate through these halls uh, for the glory of your name. And it's through our blessed Redeemer that we pray all these things. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And it says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. 
That's a good job. My name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, that's funny. Um, I, I've been made aware of just a couple things. Uh, one, uh, my uh, greeting is super predictable. Um, I say good morning. You say good morning. I say my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, that, that's probably not going to change. Uh, I mean, I'll work on it. It's probably not going to change. And then I was made aware that... Um, uh, the last two weeks, I've said Melchizedek uh, wrong about 97 times, um, and I've been saying Melchizedek, um, like, and that's actually his Russian brother, Mikhail. Um and uh, it's a it's not a common name. So uh, we uh, we're here. We've been walking through um, uh, what we've called Jesus, Joy, and Sinners. And uh, we're walking right through, even into the Advent season, uh, right along with it. And we're kind of working through a book that we want to give you, uh, Gentle and Lowly, where uh, it's really just focusing on who the heart of God, especially seen in the person of Jesus, but not only in the person of of Jesus. I mean, uh, if you see Jesus, you see the Father, the heart of God for you. And we, we come here, this is like chapter 20, uh, if you read, and we, we focus in on Galatians uh, 2.20, uh, which is a, a pretty known verse. You know, for I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, you know, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, following quickly after that in Galatians 3, uh, it starts in verse 1, and it says, this says, who bewitched you? And this is the church in Antioch. This is a church that Paul loves. And so when he says, who bewitched you, he's coming like from a place, like there is a power in a belief that is so like inside of us, it feels so natural to us that it has like a spiritual bewitching power. And he's going to describe that power as this, adding something to the gospel. And so, so, syllables, they're hard. Specifically here, it's adding this idea of, yeah, 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 man, we're saved by Jesus and we put all our hope in him. But to be really good Christians, to be real Christians, there's a certain set of laws we got to live by. And specifically, the controversy comes out, who do you eat with and what do you eat? And so in essence, it's saying this, yeah, 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 Jesus. But really what we need is we need Jesus plus be Jewish and then you're a real Christian. Or we need to be Jesus plus whatever we add to that. And Paul is saying to a church that he adores, that he loves, that he is afraid for. And he's saying, if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. And these, these controversies were actually these difficulties we're actually difficult. We see him in a lot of the epistles all the way around. Like we, we see him with the idea of circumcision. We see him uh, with the idea of like uh, the laws, the clean laws, the kosher laws. We see him throughout the New Testament. And like we might read that and it may not really resonate the danger to us because we don't really wrestle with the idea of kosher laws or we don't really wrestle with the idea of circumcision. Like we don't wrestle with those ideas. But what it's talking about, he's talking to the Jewish Christians who are going back like we have given our lives to this old system that Jesus said was made perfect in him and it's a way that we know and we don't know how to operate without it. We're afraid of the freedom that comes with the gospel. And I think we can actually relate to that very well. And so, uh, you know, when we came to this, looking at Galatians 2.20, I was like, man, we can't be in Galatians 2 and not jump back to verse 11. And so initially this sermon was seven and a half pages long, and I cut it down and cut it down and cut it down. I always try to get to three and a half pages, and it's so hard, y'all. Um, so we'll just ask for forgiveness now. Here we go. The book of Galatians, it's a fast-moving book, and it's really a, a pretty explosive letter. 
Um, it's, uh, it explains how the joy and the freedom of the gospel leads to a life of significance, security, and satisfaction, which are root idols inside of us. And so it explains how the gospel enters into you to start to change you from the inside out in a way that the law never could. It's explosive with a danger that we need to hear that we are prone to add something to the complete work of Jesus. And we don't necessarily look at people that don't do that or a part of that. We don't necessarily look at them and be like, man, I don't even know if they're Christians. We just kind of look at them like, eh, they're not very good Christians. And so it comes with the same kind of warning. And it says this, like understanding the true gospel more clearly, understanding it more deeply, is the way that Jesus transforms people, churches, and communities. But adding to the gospel it is a way that some people will miss the gospel entirely and will walk with a limp, unsure if Jesus is really for us and if we're really secure in him. We will either live for the heart of God, trying to earn it. Or we'll live from the heart of God, believing that we are a child of God who has been bestowed with love and it can never be taken away from us. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. There is nothing inside of us or outside of us, nothing that has happened or nothing that will happen that can separate us from the love of God because Jesus came and Jesus went to the cross and Jesus rose again. There is nothing and that kind of security will change you. And so to this church that he loves, we have the Apostle Paul coming off the high ropes, like WWE, old school style, man. This is give them the chair. I mean, this is coming off the high ropes. It says, please listen. The gospel is what changes you. And so right here, like coming to the, the, the crux of the heart, look at verse 14. The, the, the problem is that there were passions and concerns that were living outside of the vantage point of the gospel. And so we see this. Their conduct was not in step with, with the truth of the gospel. In a moment of things that they were concerned about or things that were shaping their life, they said, man, I don't know if we can really trust the gospel. We got to add some other things to it. We got to add good things to it. Like they were evil things. And so the crux of this is my life, my passions, my concerns, the way I work, the way I pursue relationships, the things that I even fear, are they in line and under the truth of the gospel? And so we're going to look at this with, with two headings. And so two headings are, first, the reshaping power of the gospel. And specifically, we're going to look at what it says it is here to reshape in this letter. And it's here to reshape a lot more than what's in this letter. But specifically, it's going to try to, it's here to reshape the way we do conflict. It's here to correct hypocrisy. And it's here to combat racism. That's what's in this letter. And, and then... We're going to look at the saving power of the gospel, and we're going to get real geeky. We're just going to look at words, um, the saving power of the gospel. And so here we go. The reshaping power of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just come to save you. It comes to change you by looking deeper into the heart of God of what he did for you, who he is for you. Your heart will melt and it will be malleable and it will change. But if you approach this life to white knuckle all your difficulties, your heart will stay hard. The gospel will reshape you. Matter of fact, the Bible expects you to understand that the gospel should be applied to areas of difficulty. Like that's what we see. And so verse 14 again, it just says this. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, like that's the core reason, that's the main problem. And so look at this. It says this, like not in step with the truth of the gospel. That word, not in step, it's a compound word. It just adds two things, ortho and then podeo. And so ortho means straight. That's why you go to the orthodontist so they can straighten your dentist. 
And if you're thinking about something to do, it's a very lucrative career. We are two out of four with the orthodontist, and we are working for straight dentists. You should think about it. And so, like, it's straight. And then podeo, it means to walk. And so this is saying that our life should walk in a straight line with the gospel. And it's not used, this word is only used right here. It's not used like in a literal sense, like to walk straight, but a metaphorical sense. Like when you were a kid and your mom looked at you and said, you better straighten up. They did not mean fix your posture. They said, stop doing what you're doing or die. And so it says, the gospel is here to put all of your concerns, all of your fears, all of your passions into a vein, into a movement. The gospel becomes something that reshapes you from the inside out. And so it starts with the heart of it. But we see this in the scriptures. Like really, if you want to think about this, that the epistles, the letters, so from Romans to, to Jude, for the most part, are about understanding what the gospel is and then applying it to everyday life. And so it's all through the New Testament. Like we see things like understanding friendship in light of the gospel. You could read about that in John 15, verse 12 through 13. Or we understand marriage in light of the gospel, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Or we understand sex and sexuality through the eyes of the gospel, that it can form us. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew 19. Or the blessedness of singleness as a gift. You can read about that also in 1 Corinthians 7. Or we understand that the gospel shapes the way we work in Ephesians 6. And it shapes the way we hold our possessions and generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. Like the New Testament does not whisper this at all. It says, listen, the gospel wants to reform you and shape you. It wants to make you a certain kind of person that is that, that we can actually walk around in the kingdom of God and understand some of the customs. Like you were justified, we're gonna get to that word at the end when we geek out, but you were justified being like you don't have sin so you can now enter the kingdom of God. But now the sanctifying work of God in your life is taking the gospel and then drenching that it might change all of these things about you. And so the main problem was there was something going on inside of the church that was not in step with the gospel. And it's gonna, it's gonna tell us. And so first, we're gonna see these, these three things. It's gonna talk about how we do conflict. Uh, it's a lost art. You need to take notes on this. Uh, it's gonna talk about how we view hypocrisy, how we defeat it in our heart. It's deeper than we want. And then we're gonna talk about the specific issue that is here in the Galatian church. And it's a specific issue that has plagued humanity for all of life, and it plagues our country, and it plagues the church. We're gonna talk about racism. And so look at this. The gospel reshapes how we do and view conflict. Verse 11. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like how do you, I opposed him to his face. Like how do you picture that? Like what is the soundtrack going on behind that picture? I mean, it is like, Y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in here. Like I opposed him to his face. And so that, that actually tells us some things. Conflict is meant to be like between you and a person, specifically their face, you know. It, conflict is meant to be clear. He came with something very specific. There's something wrong. He didn't come with like general ideas of you just kind of seem bad to me. He came with your conduct is not in line with the gospel. There is something that you're doing that I'm afraid for and it's teaching a legacy that's wrong. He came with something specific with, with evidence. Listen, he didn't like get online and post something eerily similar to a hypothetical situation that might be going on in the personal life. He didn't do that. He, he, he didn't like go around and consult everyone for advice, but really just trying to make everyone think someone else is so stupid beyond repair. He didn't do that. He went to Peter and said, we have a problem. He opposed him. He came to Peter, his colleague, 
his friend, his fellow pastor, and he says, we have to talk about this. Now, like, we could do a whole sermon on this, but I just want to give you some helpful hints. Like, how do you uh, let the gospel shape conflict? Like, first, I would say, man, you need to assume the best in the other person. We naturally give them, like, the most evil motives we could come out with. Like, I mean, like, they said something bad against you, and you're like, man, they're probably, like, sacrificing children, you know, somewhere. We give like the worst, like assume the best in them, give them the benefit of the doubt. And then when you go to talk to them, ask questions and listen to them. What is the value in the moment that they're seeking? Like trying to understand that, like don't yell or name call. Contrary to popular um, action, it's not really helpful. Uh, Don't, oh, I got another killer point. Oh yeah, this is really important. Give the Bible authority above your preference. I mean, we, it's almost like this. It's almost like God, you know, spent thousands of years preparing humanity through the words of the prophets that explain their lives in less than flattering ways that we might understand what God is like and how he wants to intersect humanity. And the New Testament then speaks to all these difficult areas of our life to guide us. It's almost like that's real. That's why we see these topics in the scriptures And sometimes we have to work hard because they might be a little culturally different, but like we need to be true to what they're saying. Like if it wasn't true then, it's not always true and it's certainly not true now. If we're trying to make something true now that wasn't true then, we done messed up. A.A. Ron. (laughs) Give the Bible authority. So the first we see that the, the gospel reshapes how we view conflict. And the first thing I want you to see is conflict is needed. We're gonna come back to that. But what is the conflict about? Really two things. First, hypocrisy. Look in verse 13. Like, we love to throw the hypocriser word around. We love it, we love it, we love it. And so does verse 13. Look at it twice. It says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, like, what is hypocrisy? Like, we throw that around a little bit loosely sometimes. We throw it around like hypocrisy is someone who just fails to live up to their standards. And in that case, we are all hypocrites a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But the word hypocrisy, it comes from the the theater area where, uh, you know, an actor would put on a mask and would act differently. And so hypocrisy is when you act in a way that your core convictions aren't real. And we need to know some things about hypocrisy. First off, look look at verse 11, it goes on, it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. Hypocrisy is a condemnable sin. Like, it, it, it puts it in the category, like the word condemned, it means decisively guilty. Like not like, like, well, maybe. It's like decisively guilty. And so when we like have core convictions about what the love of God would do in us or through us or what the scriptures say about how like my life should be run, my relationships or the work that I should do or how I should value things or not value them, but I put on a different face because that just feels a little too costly. So I act like my core convictions aren't real. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. And so first, it's a condemnable sin. Second, look at verse 12. It says, before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, fearing the circumcision party. And so what drives hypocrisy? Fear. 
Specifically here, it was fear of maybe I won't be okay or maybe my church buddies won't approve of the freedom that I'm living. Maybe they'll judge me. Maybe they'll call me names. Maybe they'll talk behind my back and slander me. Maybe they'll write things like hypothetical situations on the internet. I don't know, but it came into this. Like he feared his conduct was changed because he was afraid. He was afraid of peer pressure. Like, I don't know if that, like, strangely encourages you or discourages you. But, like, this is Peter. The apostle Peter. The guy who preached in Acts 2 and 3,000 people were saved. That Peter. It's the Peter that was walking around in Jerusalem one day and his shadow was healing people according to Acts 5. It was that Peter. And all of a sudden that Peter was afraid because of peer pressure. Listen to, uh, listen to how Martin Luther talks about this verse. He says this. <clears throat> <clears throat> for it is a great comfort for us to hear that even such great saints sin. Samson, David, and many other celebrated men who were full of the Holy Spirit fell into huge sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah grow tired of life and pray for death. Such errors and sins of the saints are set forth in order that those who are troubled and desperate may find comfort and those who are proud may be afraid. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. The scriptures that we have before us, it doesn't clean people up to make them heroes that we just need to emulate. It shows us fallen people who struggled on the inside, on the outside. And the reason it shows us those people is because that's all they have to show. It's all of us and Jesus. And so Martin Luther looks at this story in Galatians 2 and he sees the confrontation, the gospel shaping confrontation. He sees the fall into hypocrisy. He sees these and he says, I find a strange comfort knowing that if Peter can fall, I will certainly fall. But if he can rise again in repentance, so can I. And so some things about hypocrisy, it's a condemnable sin, verse 11. It's driven by fear, verse 12. And then finally, it destroys faith and is very contagious. Look, look at verse 13. It says, so that even Barnabas was led astray. The danger of hypocrisy is it has this contagious effect that resonates with something on the inside of us that just seems right when we don't hold it up consistently to the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. It seems right. You know, th this is what happens when we do our, our research, um, you know, on social media. Like, we read something, no. Read something else, no. Read something else, no. Read something, yes. That is, that, that's it. There's something that sometimes resonates in us that just seems right. It talks about this danger. And so just consider this. Even Barnabas. Barnabas was the guy who confronted Paul in Acts 14 because he was being a judgmental jerk to John Mark and wouldn't take him on the second missionary journey. Barnabas was the guy that stood up for him and said, hey, wait a minute, Paul, didn't you write 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, but now John Mark's not good enough to go on the journey? Didn't you write that? And the, the, the confrontation was so brutal that they went on separate journeys. Even Barnabas was led astray. But look at this. Like, 
we have this. Here, we have Peter and Barnabas. They needed their Christian brothers and sisters to confront them here in Galatians 2. But later, Paul would need his Christian brothers and sisters to confront him in Acts 14. So Peter needed it from Paul. Paul needed it from Barnabas. And Barnabas needed it from Paul. Like, forget the Lion King. This is the circle of life. We all need our Christian brothers and sisters to confront us. This is, why, this is why, Christian, you will never mature. You will never grow into Christ-likeness, just you and your favorite podcast and a bag of chips. I always add a bag of chips. You won't. You need your brothers and sisters to be like, whoa, 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 hypocrisy. You need your brothers and sisters to say, no, 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 man, you are adding stuff to the gospel. Like you're afraid of what the scriptures actually say. You're afraid of the open nature of the scriptures and you're trying to earn it on your own and you're actually hurting yourself. You're growing in anxious fear all the time. I don't even recognize you right now. Walk in who God came to save. You have nothing to hide. All sin is common to man. And so we need one another. Like these are apostles and pastors needing one another to confront one another. The third thing that we see the gospel shaping, racism. Like, listen, I know like, you know, we say that and people are like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like you, you don't, don't hold your breath, breathe. It's okay. Like the gospel combats racism. The Bible confronts racism as a major and common flaw in humanity. It's outward working. It's sin. There's something inside of us that's deeper than those beliefs that feed it. And then it comes out not just in what we think and what we do or, or what we say. It comes out in culture as a whole. And so, like, it has consistently plagued humanity. Like, look at verse 12. It's going to tell us where this thing went down, the lunchroom. And then verse 14, we're going to jump to it. And it's going to specify the problem. Deeply held racial divide between Jews and Gentiles. And, and so look at verse 12. It says, For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Like, it, it's crazy to me how many conflicts we have in the New Testament about who people eat with. Like, we, we actually did a whole series on, on, on Jesus, who he ate with, and it always exploded in some sort of controversy. And then he's like, hey, I got something to teach about that. And he tells like a story about it. And then everyone's like, oh, man, he's right. You know, but there was a lot of controversy about who people ate with. Like the Pharisees, they were furious at Jesus of who he ate with. You can read about a story of that in Matthew 9. Or, or, or here, the Antioch church is divided about who you can eat with. And so like, this is like, if you went to public school, you, you know that there's a fear of who I can eat with and who I can't. Like, there's a fear. Like, if you were ever a new kid at a school and you walked into the lunchroom and you're like, oh my gosh, where am I gonna sit down? And then you just thought, maybe I should look into intermittent fasting. Maybe that's the right choice for me. When I was doing youth ministry, I would go to, to lunches, and I would have this really different experience at high school lunch versus middle school lunch. In, in middle school lunch, man, I come in, I felt like a celebrity. Like, I was high-fiving kids I didn't even know. And people were like, hey, come sit at my lunch. Open my milk. And they had this weird, like, they, for a while, they went away from cardboard boxes into the milk bladder. And so you had to, like, stab it when it wasn't moving to work. It was a disaster. Um, but like I would go and it was like, man, this is great. And then I'd go to, I'd go to high school lunch and it was like my, my students couldn't recognize me. And we, we, I mean, we weren't wearing masks in school or anything. It was just like, hey, I'm, I'm your youth pastor. Uh, what are you doing here? You know? um, and I feel insecure. So after I go visit high school lunch, I'd be like, I got it. Man, I got to go to middle school lunch just to feel better about myself. This is about who do you sit with? Who do you work with? Are they good enough? Or is there something about them that might taint you? And so 
the situation, it was visible in what he did, his conduct. But the specific problem, we already said was in verse 14, not in line with the gospel, but listen in this. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas Peter before all of them, if you, though a Jew, lives like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like a Jew? Did you notice all those words? Jew, Gentile, Jew, Gentiles, Jews. We underestimate the racial divide in the first century church. Like there was a lot of animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Like a lot of animosity. And so this is like this moment. The reason why Peter confronts him to his face or Paul confronts Peter to his face is because he's afraid. You see, Jesus came to purchase one humanity, one people, one people who have one thing in common, sinners saved by grace. And the church was at risk of having two categories. Like, yes, yeah, sinners saved by grace, but then really awesome, like sinners saved by grace who do really awesome things and are better than those people. There was a danger. And so, like, thinking about these categories, I mean, there's this danger of two categories of Christian, Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian, and Paul jumped out of his lunchroom seat, flips over his milk and says, not today, Satan. That was supposed to be funny, but okay. <laughs> Let me just say three things. The early church struggled with racism. It's hard for us to understand this divide, that divide that was on the Jew-Gentile lines. Like, do you remember, let me, if you know the New Testament, do you remember how shocked the disciples were when they found Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4? They were just confused. And so that shock was racism. How, how could you talk to her, the likes of her? Or do you remember when James and John came back from the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus? Do you remember what they asked Jesus? They said, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire from heaven to destroy the entire city? That anger was fueled by racism. How dare they reject us? Like that divide had been growing and growing and growing. The early church struggled along these race lines between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is saying it is incompatible with the message of the gospel with what Jesus came to do. And so the early church struggled with racism. Human history is plagued with racial struggle. You know, Ephesians 2 uh, in verses 14 through 16. I'm just gonna paraphrase it, but I'm gonna give you some specific quotes. But Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus came to be our peace, to destroy, and I quote, the dividing wall of hostility so that he could create one new man in the place of the two, reconciling us both to God in order to kill the, the hostility. And so like every commentary that, that I've looked at, it talks about the division between humanity, whether that's like socioeconomic or whether that's ethnic or whatever that is. It just says that humankind is so easy to fracture. We get so easy to like get tribal and us versus them. And we can see it throughout all of history. Like I actually, I, I had like this long list of different like genocides, you know, going from, you know, Nazi Germany to, to Rwanda, but I had to cut out four pages. It was super awesome to demonstrate that this struggle is long and this struggle is old and it has persisted in highly educated places like Germany where it had the most per capita uh, graduate degrees than any other place on the planet. And it existed in mostly not formally educated places like Rwanda, that there is something beneath all of that that brings us to a place that the Bible calls hostility, a dividing wall of humanity. And Jesus came to rectify that we might be united to God again, but to make one new people. And it works. 
If you're in the Bible reading plan, man, we are getting to the end of Revelation where every tribe and tongue is there worshiping. And to know that every tribe and tongue is there must be there must have been different languages singing. Have you ever heard a language that you don't know sing a worship song or hymn that you do know? Oh, it's beautiful. And so it's going to work. And the beautiful thing is with the power of the gospel, we can have some of that. We can have more of that now. And so it it was in the early church. It's scattered and prolific in human history. Our country has had seriously, 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 serious issues with racism. The church has a sordid history of racism. And it goes all the way back to Ephesians 2, this confrontation. Racism is sin. It's incompatible with the gospel. It plagues more than we know. It affects individuals and it affects culture, structures. Now, I'm just going to throw some phrases out and uh, I'm going to explain. You know, if I said racial reconciliation, sometimes people freak out like, oh, what do you mean? You know, and this is what I mean. I mean that walking in line with the gospel will identify need and work to rectify problems between people and people groups that where there are sin and hurts, like what do we do as Christians? Man, we just can't, we acknowledge it, we confess it, we ask for Jesus to bring light to the situation. And like you say words like that and people are like, oh, what do you mean? And that's what I mean. Or or maybe I might say something like this, like systemic, and and people freak out, what do you mean? And I mean that history gives birth to present realities, and a history of racism can affect the present. And like, there is a timeline that explains how we got the black ghetto in our country. There's a timeline. Like, if I say this, if I say personal responsibility and people freak out, like, what do you mean? I mean that the Bible talks about sin in both personal terms and in corporate terms. Last week, you know, we opened and we just talked a little bit about our country and abortion. And you might remember, like it was a moment everyone was kind of holding their breath, you know. And we, we just talked about it for a little bit. And I talked about it, I don't know if you know, I talked about it in terms of personal and corporate sin. Like, like I talked about like we have a culture that looks at sex outside of marriage as permissive and no big deal. And like, oh man, you should have waited. But we don't acknowledge the deep, deep problems that it causes. It's a personal sin, but it's also a cultural thing that has a permissive view about it. Or or I said this, I said, you know, or I could say it this way, like we have a problem sometimes that our selfishness affects the way we look at kids. Like, like, Like God says children are a blessing and we say, man, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, trips to Europe are a blessing. So that kid's gonna get in the way of my joy and pleasure. And so like we, we have a, like that's a held belief that affects us or you know, we could look at like just easy divorce and God hates divorce, but our culture says, ah, it is what it is. You see, these are personal sins, but these are also culturally held values that change the way we see this thing. And like, we would say that's systemic. There's something in our culture that has a pull. And so that comes from individual sin that grows up and starts to infiltrate what we see and what we read and starts to infiltrate the way we interpret things. And like it's just kind of the pot that we're stewing in. Now listen, you might, you might be hearing that one way. We need to hear that both ways. You see, the danger in these moments are we have a lot of voices competing for our allegiance. And what I'm saying is we need to look to the scriptures to find our allegiance. And so listen, listen to what, what I read. I've been reading Proverbs because I'm, I'm wrestling with um, some decisions and I, I don't want to do something stupid. So you got to read Proverbs because it's basically like, hey, don't do stupid stuff. Do this. And um, <laughs> Like Dwight, what would an idiot do? I'm not going to do that. Um, But listen to what I read. Proverbs 29. I just want you to listen. If you want to look at it later, Proverbs 29, verses 8 through 13. It says this, Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. 
If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. If a ruler listens to falsehoods, all his officer, uh, officials will be wicked. Listen to this. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Reconciliation. Like it almost sounds like the gospel wants to lead us in such a way that we approach problems in such a way and we approach one another, not out of fear and trembling of one another, but out of fear and trembling of the Lord. Like Paul coming to Peter and says, there is so much more at stake here than who you eat with at lunch. So the first point, the longer point, y'all, the reshaping power of the gospel. There are so many things. I, I went through a list of what the gospel wants to center in on your life. And we're just asking this. Is there a place of your life that you're listening to something other than the scriptures to form you? The reshaping power of the gospel. Number two, the saving power of the gospel for all of you. Like, look, look at this vocabulary. Um, and so if we understand these terms, it's going to help us understand all that Jesus did and what we have. And so look at verse 15 and 16. It says, this was the, the, the argument that came after the, the, the confrontation of, I'm about to lose my mind right here. I mean, this is, this is the moment. He says this, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And what he means there is, we're going to talk just a second about the kosher laws. He's not saying like, man, they are sinners. He's saying that they don't have the kosher laws that set themselves apart to bring the message of the scriptures to bear that would point to Jesus. You see, what God did was to explain what he was going to do he picked a people. He picked Abraham and said, just listen, follow after me. Write down what I tell you, what you do. Follow after me. And then we start to accumulate the scriptures that brought us to this place. If I'm never good enough, I can't be clean enough. I can't ever sacrifice enough. I need something I can't do, which was Jesus. Like you should, the, the scriptures that we read before I got up here was more than enough. We need Jesus. And so this is what he says. He's like, when he says Gentile sinners, he means they don't have the same laws. It goes on, it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified Word number one, justification. Like we, we, we get into these, like, uh, uh, these Bible words and sometimes we just assume that everyone knows what they mean and it's actually really, and I do it, it's actually really bad preaching. Um, but like justification, you know, a little quip, you know, justification is just like you never sin. Justification is, uh, is basically what makes you acceptable. What makes you acquire or get into the room? Justification is a legal term that legally pronounces someone to be without guilt, someone to be good enough, someone to be clean enough, someone to be presentable. It legally says, not on the basis of what they've done, but a proclamation to say you can come just as you are because it's been paid for. There is now no guilt in your record. The gospel justifies. In college, I was a part of a life-changing small group. Uh, four men, we met with a guy who's discipling us. Um, his name was Stuart. I, mean, I might cry and think about it. Um, one of those guys, his name was Jay Bratton. Jay Bratton is now a missionary um, to the Nepali people, a precious soul. Um, in the Bible study, this was years later, he said, man, we would come to words like, like the gospel and you guys just talked about it like you knew what it was. And he says, I was screaming on the inside, please, someone explain it. He didn't get saved for a couple years after. 
And so this legal term, justification, it makes you acceptable to God. And that's what was so problematic here. You see, the, the Old Testament has a series of laws called the kosher laws or the clean laws. And, and they dictated that you know, plates and dishes had to be washed a certain way. Food had to be prepared or stored a certain way. Animals that you ate had to be killed a certain way. Or there's lots of things that you don't eat because it's not kosher. And it was this system that showed that even trying to live a normal life, there was something about life and something in you that made you not presentable to God. And so if you came across the wrong person or ate the wrong thing, or they didn't wash the dishes right, you, weren't, you couldn't go worship God. And so the problem with this is a Jewish person couldn't eat with anybody else because no one ate like that. No one ate like that. And so entering in the church and the gospel was coming against everything inside of them that says, man, I don't know if this is okay. I don't know if the gospel is big enough to justify me. So maybe I better do these things also. And so Peter was saying, Jesus plus being Jewish and eating the right way and doing these things equals good enough for God. Now, I, I don't think he would have said, those people aren't saved. I think he might have believed they're not really committed, like that God probably doesn't love them as much as me because they're eating bacon. Even though God sent a vision and on that blanket that came from heaven was bacon and he said arise to eat, it may not be good for your heart, but it makes you happy. Even though all of that happened, he's like, man, I don't know. I think it's Jesus plus something. And we don't do Jesus plus what you eat. We typically do Jesus plus this political party or this immigration stance or this view on masks or vaccines or no vaccines. And we don't say they're probably not saved. We just kind of say bless their heart. They're not very good Christians. Jesus plus is what Galatians 3 would say is a bewitching lie that resonates in our heart deeper than we know. And it can lead to really terrible sins like racism. And so Paul coming off the top ropes is like, listen, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So then we get to verse 17. And man, verse 17 and 18, they're really hard to understand. I'm just gonna give you my best summary statement, but let me read it to you anyways. You know, in some ways where verse 15 and 16 is really obvious, and verse 19 is really obvious, verse 17 and 18 are kind of unclear, but he makes this argument. He says, but if in our endeavors to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So I think this is saying if someone who is justified by faith in Jesus, if they walk into sin, does that mean Jesus promotes sin? And the answer is no way, Jose. But if someone says that they are justified in Christ and keeps on sinning without concern, without conscience, like this like high, you know, hard-hearted, high-handed, like, man, I know the scriptures say that, but I don't care. It's saying they don't know Jesus. But the word that's important here is at the very end of verse 18, transgressors. The gospel makes transgressors right before God. A transgressor is someone who has overstepped the boundary. Someone who has been saved by the gospel is certain that they have and they do overstep boundaries. Someone who is trusting in the works of the law or what this describes of works is only really certain about the sins of others. You know, if someone came up to you and they said, hey, I don't know if you're, are you, are you a Christian? If you get offended, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's touching on a works-based righteous thing. But if your response is like, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. It's crazy, man. Jesus came. Jesus died. I didn't earn it. I, I wouldn't have done it for me. I would, have, I would have bet on someone else. I'm the slow race horse. You know, if your response is like, man, let me tell you about Jesus, it's a good indicator 
that you are saved by grace through faith. Verse 21. Verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Third word, righteousness. Righteousness is not the result of being like really good. Righteousness has to do with a right standing. When you pay your taxes, you have a right standing with the IRS until the next year. Right standing before God is only accomplished through perfection in your place. And so the gospel is all about how do I connect sinful humanity that is in debt to a righteous God, you know, a perfect God. And the answer is creating a right standing where your debt is taken care of. Look back at verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The gospel is this. Jesus was crucified in your place like you were crucified. So the debt of your sin has been paid for. I have been crucified with Christ. And then it goes on. It's really talking toward the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus stands for you also. And it says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this is what I want you to hear loud. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Like the crux of the issue is that you will either live from the heart of God or you will live for the heart of God. Living from the heart of God is resting in the love of God. It doesn't mean that you don't apply effort. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be opportunities where you have to conform your life to be reflective of the truth of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle with fear and discontentment. It means that in those struggles, it is easy to look at the scriptures and you discipline yourself to look at the scriptures just say God is for me he loved me and he gave himself for me Romans 8 one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible it ends in this proclamation who can separate us from the love of God can anything inside of me or outside of me or anything to come or anything in the past is there anything in the spiritual realm above the earth or under the earth like it is this exhausted pointing moment where he's saying can anything separate me from the love of God and he says no because I'm convinced if he God didn't withhold his son from me what will he now withhold from me because he was convinced that Jesus was crucified because of love. Jesus gave himself because of love. He was convinced that Jesus came to settle these problems that we have because of our transgressors, because we need a right standing with God, and there was no way for us to justify ourselves to get there, that Jesus did it on our behalf so we can now live from the heart of God. But the danger is the bewitching lie inside of us is this, that we keep trying to live for the heart of God. If you're living for the heart of God and you're working for it, you are constantly in, in oscillation between pride and despair. When you outperform others or you outdoctrinize others or you out whatever others, you feel very prideful. You kind of pity the ones who don't do it as well. But when you fail at your own standards and there are other people outperforming you, you feel despair and you can't take your sin or your hurts to Jesus until you put together a few days or a couple weeks that you feel like you outperform someone else because only then will God love you. And I'm telling you, that is not the gospel. The heart of God is for you. And the gospel doesn't just save you, it reshapes you. Look again. Let me pray for us. Um, God, Lord, I pray that we would see the list even bigger, like the list of the things that you want to reshape, that you want to draw in line with the nature of the gospel, the God-giving God who entered in, that we celebrate at Christmas and we celebrate at Easter. Lord, you want to apply that deeper,
Lord, I pray that even now as we move to communion, Lord, that there would be a sense of where we just need to apply that. Whether that's to a belief about relationships or a belief about success or a belief about what would make me happy or a belief about money, a belief about who I am and my worth, that the gospel would pull it into line. Lord, we ask for help. You know, the the way that we take communion is we have two options. We either come forward and what you can expect is uh, a piece of bread will be torn away from the loaf, dipped into the wine, and then handed to you with a proclamation of the body of Christ for you. Now, this is a thing that's for Christians. It's a constant reminder that we come back, that we say, the gospel, what Jesus did, has changed my status. I am now invited to the table. And so we celebrate it every week to have a physical reminder. But there's another way that you can take communion. The other way is we have a gluten-free option back at the information table. It's an individual serving, and that's also a way that we do. But there's another movement that you might need. During communion, we have a prayer team and they gather behind uh, the black sheets and they'll be there, they have tags, and they're there just to pray. And they're gonna pray like, like they believe prayer works. They're gonna ask you what you need prayer for. You give some sort of understanding and we're gonna ask like the Holy Spirit of God can work in your heart, in God's heart because he is God and in their heart and that God honors prayer and they're gonna pray for God to move. And so if you come and you say, man, I need help with my dissatisfaction, it is outside the lines of the gospel or my view of self or my view of the good life or my view of family because they've hurt me so much, whatever that is, they're just gonna pray for you. And so those are two movements. There's also another movement that if you're unsure about the person of Jesus, we ask you just to sit and there'll be some verses up on the screen that talk about salvation. And we ask you to ask about who Jesus is, what he did for you, and the reshaping power of the gospel. Lord, we love you and we need help. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.